morning, everybody. Um, our sermon scripture reading from this morning is coming from Acts 7, 44 through 53. So you can follow along in your Bibles or uh, just listen as I read. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Amen. When we come to the scriptures each week, we come recognizing that the, the words that we read are not just simple words, but they are living words. They are words given to us by God. So we come before them with expectancy, asking God to speak to us through them. Typically, I would pray something along those lines, but this morning we're going to pray this prayer of expectancy together as we come to the scriptures. So I'll lead and you join in with me. Lord God, help us to know your ways. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all day long through Christ our Lord. Amen. One of the more uh, fun things that I get to do as a pastor is uh, I have the opportunity to marry people from time to time. And I get to do about several marriages a year, and, and this week I got to do one on Friday night. And it was a, a great ceremony, and it was a wonderful experience. But after doing several weddings over the years, I've noticed that there's a certain pattern that often comes to weddings. You go to the rehearsal dinner, and often the bride and the groom are incredibly stressed. They've, they're, they're dealing with all the details that come from trying to plan a wedding. And so often at the rehearsal dinner, the husband and wife either look at each other or they look at me and they say something along the lines of, I just can't wait until this wedding is over with. Because they've been asked an infinite number of questions and they've had to keep on top of an infinite number of details. But of course, all that changes the next day. When I get the privilege of standing up front with the groom and seeing his eyes open up wide when his bride walks down the aisle and all of a sudden, all those details now matter or all those details really make sense. See, life is full of details and I think sometimes it's hard for us to not get lost in the details. Relationships are full of details. Parenting is full of details and schedules. I can remember when we first had kids, someone said, you have to keep the kids on a schedule. So we did that. We were religious about keeping the kids on 
the schedule. But at some point, we looked at ourselves and said, we're not enjoying these kids because we're so stressed about the details. We're so stressed about the schedule. And that sometimes happens about life. We get so lost in the details that we sometimes miss the beauty or the purpose of life. And I think so often the same thing can happen to us when it comes to matters of faith. And our passage this morning shows us an incredibly dangerous tendency to sometimes be lost in the details of the faith and miss what it is truly about. Last week we looked at the story of Stephen. Stephen, as our kid's story reminded us, was one of those men that was chosen to care for a group of widows that were being neglected. The scriptures tell us not only did he care for those widows, but he was constant in preaching the gospel. And many signs and wonders came as a result of his preaching the gospel. Many people were converted to Jesus Christ. But in the process, others got angry. Stephen had a way of of angering the Jewish religious elite of his day. And he angered them so much that they spread lies about him. They brought him in front of a kangaroo court and they eventually stoned him to death. And as history looks back on the person of Stephen, they recognize him as the first Christian martyr. And after Stephen, the the persecution for Christians became more and more intense, so much so that they had to be scattered outside of Jerusalem to all sorts of places in the countryside. Their persecution originally came from the Jewish authorities, but then it moves on to the Roman authorities that persecuted him and several other authorities throughout the ancient world. But before Stephen was stoned, before he was executed, he had an opportunity to give a defense about his faith before this court. And Acts chapter 7 that we just read a small portion of tells us about his defense in front of this court about his faith. The defense climaxes in verse 52, when Stephen says that Jesus is the coming of the righteous one, but they, as the religious elite of the day, have totally missed it. They had become so lost in their details as religious professionals that they missed the very main thing that God was doing. But they didn't just miss Jesus. They had him betrayed, and they had him executed on the cross. Often people will ask me, what is the difference between Christianity and Judaism? They know somehow those two faith traditions really go together, but they wonder what the difference is, and here really is the difference. Christians believe that Jesus was the consummation. He was the climax of God's redemptive plan for human history. The Jewish faith believes that that plan still has yet to unfold, that their redemption is still yet to come. But really, the person of Jesus is what makes the Christian faith unique from all other faiths that exist in this world. Because the scriptures teach us that Jesus was unique, that he was God who took on skin, that he was at the very center of God's plan for redemption, his rescue plan for this world. And it tells us that Jesus is really the only true worthy object of our trust. He is the only way that we can be made right before the Father. He is the center of our faith. 
And this is Stephen's argument. This was Stephen's argument. And he shares this argument really in three different ways or in three different fronts before this court. The first thing he says is Christ is at the very center of the ancient scriptures. Christ is at the center of the scriptures. If you know me, you know I don't watch a whole lot of movies. I used to watch movies all the time, but then I had kids, and now all the movies that I watch are movies made by Disney. So I don't get to see a whole lot of other movies that are out there, even though I, I enjoy watching movies. But when I was growing up, movies were different than the way they are now. When I was growing up, you could watch a movie and you'd know pretty quickly who the hero of the story was. You could tell who the protagonist was and you could really clearly tell who the antagonist was and you knew who the hero was and you knew who the villain was. But if I ever get a chance to watch movies nowadays, it's much more complex. Have you noticed this in movies now? You don't always know who the hero is. You don't always know who the villain is. And sometimes it doesn't even become clear until the very end of the story. But one of the things that's very clear in the ancient scriptures, though it is often lost, is that Jesus is clearly the center of the entire story of the scriptures. He is the hero of the scriptures. He is the protagonist. He is the central figure of the scriptures from its very start to its very completion. You see, the court that Stephen was giving his defense before was a court that was full of men that were considered to be the experts on these scriptures. They had the Old Testament just like you and I do, and they were responsible for not only knowing it, but also teaching it to the people. And these ancient scriptures have their own heroes all throughout them. In chapter 7, verse 2, it talks about the hero of Abraham, who was considered to be the father of the Jewish faith. In verse 9, it begins to talk about Jacob, Jacob and Joseph, who were great patriarchs of the faith. In verse 17, Stephen talks about Moses and the Exodus event, which was the seminal event in Jewish history. He then goes on to talk about Joshua, the man who led the Hebrew people into the promised land. He talks about David, who was the quintessential king of the Jewish people. He talks about Solomon, who was known to be the wisest king in Jewish history and who was responsible for building the temple, which was the most sacred place for the Jewish faith. And what Stephen does is he intentionally discusses each one of these heroes one by one, but he begins to recast the way those heroes should be viewed. Now, when we were getting ready to, to plant a church uh, here in the city, we went to really what's called church, uh, church Planters Boot Camp. And they gave us all sorts of tips on how to start a new church in a new different area. And one of the tips they told you to do was to move into the area and begin to listen. Begin to listen to the stories that are being told in an, in an area. Begin to listen to discover who the heroes are of a certain area or of a certain city. Now for us, that was a little tricky. Uh, we've always lived in Baltimore. We've always really lived in this area. So I am just as much a product of the culture as everyone else is. So it was tough to, for me to sometimes kind of step out of myself and discover what the story of this city is or who the heroes of this city are. But I gave lots of thought about it. 
Lots of thought about who are the heroes that our city really looks up to. Now, you could go way back into history and you could identify Lord Baltimore, who our city is named after. But he lived so long ago that nobody really cares about him at all. But when you think about kind of modern history of the past hundred years, who are the heroes of this city? You think of names like H.L. Mencken and, and William Donald Schaefer and Juanita Mitchell and uh, Thurgood Marshall. But if you have lived in Baltimore, you know really our heroes are sports heroes. We emulate figures. We, we make them out to be gods. Men like Johnny Unitas and, and Ray Lewis and, and Earl Weaver and Cal Ripken Jr. These are the, the heroes of Baltimore City. And if anyone from the outside of the city begins to criticize our heroes, begins to suggest that these men and women don't actually really walk on water, then we get really defensive. It's one of that fierce, it's that kind of fierce pride that we have in our cities, and we're willing to defend our heroes to the very end. Well, in a very, in a a similar way, but really a more intense way, that is what is going on here in this story. You see, Stephen isn't deprecating these spiritual giants of the Jewish culture. Instead, he's arguing that all of these little heroes of their culture were actually pointing to one great hero. One central figure in which all those other heroes point to. He even talks about Moses in his defense and quotes Moses when he said that God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And of course, we know that Moses was speaking of the ultimate hero. He was speaking of Jesus who would come and accomplish the great redemption of his people. Earlier in our service, we read from Luke chapter 24, which was one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. When two men are walking on the road and they encounter Jesus, but they don't realize that they have encountered Jesus. And they begin talking about all the events that happened surrounding Jesus' life and his death and his execution and his resurrection. And what what it says is Jesus walks through the scriptures with each one of these men. And describes how all of the scriptures really talk about the person of Jesus Christ. And it says that as a product, each, and each one of those men that walked with Jesus and heard that had hearts inside of them that were burning. It's really saying the same thing that Stephen is saying. That Jesus is the point of all the scriptures. He is the climax. He is the hero of the story. You know, many people approach the scriptures with all sorts of different motives. Some approach the scriptures looking for life lessons or for tips on how to have happy living or a good life. Some people look at the scriptures for, as a tool in order to make wise decisions about their life. Or they look at the scriptures trying to find examples of people they can emulate. And it clearly does contain all those things. But really the main point of the scriptures is to tell the story of Jesus Christ. And to miss Jesus in the scriptures is to actually miss the entire point of the entire Bible. Because Christ is the center of the scriptures. But Stephen also argues that Christ is not just the center of the scriptures, but he also is the center 
of religion. He's the center of this thing that we call faith. You see, he argues that that all the practices of the faith really actually point to the author of the faith, and that is Jesus Christ. He talks to this court about Abraham and about how when Abraham was around, God instituted a very unique practice called the practice of circumcision. But what he argues is that they have missed the actual point of the practice. In fact, he says uh, in, in, the, in his defense, he calls them uncircumcised in heart. Now, why does he say that? He says it because they've been so caught up in the practices of their faith that they've missed the point or the heart that is behind those practices, and that is Jesus There are many practices of the faith that you and I engage in even now. We gather for worship every Sunday here in this chapel. We sing songs. We go through readings. We take courses that teach us about the faith. We spend time reading the scriptures. We spend time in prayer and gathering in community with one another. But if those practices are not ultimately pointing us to Jesus, then we are missing the entire point of them from start to finish because the practices of the faith are intended to point us to the author of the faith. Stephen also talks about how the rules of the faith were precious to these Jewish leaders. Moses was considered to be a hero of them, not just because he led the people out of Egypt and led them out of slavery, but because he gave them the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. And this law was to form the very morality of the nation, the very morality of the faith. It was precious to them. And they had even devised an intricate set of other laws that would help them to keep the original laws. But what Stephen was saying is that in the process of being so passionate about the laws, in the process of being so passionate about the morality, that they actually missed the very point of the law itself. They missed that the law itself was impossible to keep. Therefore, we needed someone to rescue us from its condemnation. And they missed the perfect law keeper in Jesus Christ. They missed the very thing the law was pointing them to. The very thing that the law was teaching them about. And that is Jesus. So we've seen that the law was important to them. The practices of the faith was important to them. But also the location of their faith was precious to them. This temple in which Stephen was giving his defense was a very precious place to them. It was built by Solomon in their history, and they believed it was the very place that God dwelled with his people. Throughout their history, people had come in and desecrated the temple and destroyed it. They had to rebuild it, only to have another person come in and desecrate the temple and have to rebuild it once again. It's why they were so uh, intent on its purity. It's why this temple, this place, was so precious to them. In fact, if you ask these religious leaders the question of where God lived, if you ask them the place where heaven and earth intersected in its most intense place, if you ask them where to go to find God, then they would have told you, you go to the temple to find all those things. 
But you see, Stephen is answering those questions differently. Where does God live? Where does heaven and earth intersect one another? Where is the place that you go to find God? Stephen is saying you don't go to find him in a temple. You go to find God in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the place where heaven and earth intersect. He is the place where God dwells. So Stephen argues that Jesus is the center of the scriptures. He's the center of the practices and the religion of their faith. But ultimately what he argues, his main point, is that Jesus Christ has to be the center of our worship. He has to be the center of our worship. He ramps up his defense at the very end by making a comparison. He tells a story from their history in which Moses was on the the mountain. He was on Mount Sinai meeting with God and he was getting those Ten Commandments. He was getting the law that was so precious to Jewish people. But the Old Testament scriptures tell us that when Moses was up on the mountain interacting with God, that the people were down below at the foot of the mountain doing something they ought not to have done. They were building a golden calf. They brought all their gold and all their metals together and they melted it together and created a golden calf and began worshiping this golden calf instead of worshiping the Most High God. So here is what Stephen says to these religious people of the day. He says they are worshiping the wrong thing just as those people did in the Old Testament when they worshiped that calf. That their object of worship is an idol just like their fathers did at the foot of that mountain. And by making that comparison, he infuriated these religious leaders by telling them that they were not worshiping the one true God. Instead, they were worshiping idols. He tells them that instead of truly worshiping God through Jesus Christ, instead they were now worshiping the traditions of the faith. They were worshiping the practices of the faith. They were worshiping the rule of the faith. They were worshiping the location of the faith. In essence, what they were doing is they had made an idol of their own religion. And in doing so, they entirely missed Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. One of the things that I've found as a pastor is that often the people that are most resistant to the good news of Jesus Christ are not the quote-unquote sinners or not the quote-unquote pagan people that are out there, but often the most resistant people to the gospel of Jesus Christ tend to be the people that are most religious. These are the people that have made an idol out of their own practice of their faith. They've made an idol of their own morality, of their own righteousness. And even the book of Acts tells us that the most intense persecution that these first century believers faced was persecution not from the outside, but persecution from the religious leaders of the ancient world. Tim Keller, in his book called The Prodigal God, which is an excellent book, 
uh, helps us to think about a, an ancient parable that's shared for us in, uh, in the Gospels called the parable of the prodigal son. And in the parable of the prodigal son, it tells us two st- uh, the story of two sons. One was a son that was considered to be the quote-unquote sinner. He was the one that, that took all of his inheritance and he went and squandered it in wine and women and song and then ultimately realized his mistake. So he came back to his father in humility and received the forgiveness of his father and was invited in to this wonderful banquet. But it also tells us a story about the older son. And at the very end of the story, when this huge party is being thrown, when this great feast is being thrown, and everybody's celebrating about the return of this son that was lost, the elder son is strangely absent from the party. Instead, he's out in the field fuming in his anger. Why? Because he is so angry that his son who had, or his brother who had made a mess of everything is being celebrated when he has been the dutiful son. He's done everything his father has wanted him to do. He's done everything that was, was required of him to be the good son. And because he is so full of his own righteousness, so full of his own pride in his own goodness, that he ends up missing out on the party. He ends up missing out on the great feast. The warning is there for you and for I as well. Have we become so convinced in our own morality that that becomes enough for us? Are we so convinced that we are good before God because we have nailed the practices of the faith? If we have, then our righteousness or our religiosity is the very thing that's actually keeping us from Jesus. Because those that truly find Jesus are those that not only confess the wrong things that they have done in their life, but they confess that they have made an idol out of their goodness as well. When I first came to faith, I would um, be put in situations where uh, I would have opportunity to uh, tell people how I came to faith. And we'd be sitting around and people would be sharing their stories about how they came to faith. And I'd hear people about telling great stories about how God converted them from uh, a, a life of wine, women, and song, and about how God took them away from some incredible instance of overt rebellion and saved them in incredible ways. And often I'd feel like I'd have to embellish my story a little bit just to keep up with all these great stories about how people came to faith. But one of the things that I can honestly say is the time that I felt God's grace to be so real in my life was not a time when I felt like God saved me out of some sort of overt rebellion. But it came in the moment when God opened my eyes to help me see that I wasn't trusting in Him with my life. Instead, I was trusting in my own religiosity. I was trusting in my own righteousness. I was trusting in my own ability to nail the practices of the faith. And would God open my eyes to see that actually I was not worshiping Him 
Instead, I was worshiping myself. That was when I felt his grace more real than any other time in my life. What Stephen would have us to see, as he hoped these people would have seen that he gave this defense to, is the charge that we ought not to let our own perception of our goodness keep us from receiving God's grace. Because if we do, we are not truly worshiping Him. Instead, we are really worshiping ourselves. Instead, the gospel would have us recognize that even our goodness, even our best deeds, are in great need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to recognize that He really is the point of all this. And to trust in Him and not ourselves with our lives. To see Him as not just an addition to our lives, not just an addition to our faith, or not just an addition to the Scriptures, but to see Him as the very climax of our lives and of our faith. And ultimately to see Him as the climax of the story of our lives as well.